Today's episode of the Mets Up Podcast is sponsored by Anchor. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me explain. It's free. First off, that's huge. And that's what we use here on the Mets Up Podcast. I highly suggest it. There are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your own phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many other streaming services. And you're allowed to make money from your podcast from day one with no minimum listenership. It's literally everything you need to make a podcast in one place. So make sure you guys download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. What's up, Metz Up listeners? Back here for episode number 52 of the Metz Up podcast. If you're watching on YouTube, you'll be able to see the boys are back. We are back in person for the first time in what feels like quite some time for a live Metz Up episode here, talking about the awful, embarrassing, dog shit series against the Boston Red Sox. It was really bad. It was an embarrassment. The Mets played awful baseball, but hey, that's not going to be the main focus of today. We will quickly go over the first two games here because there are some things to talk about. Not too much, though, but we will still hammer some things that are worth speaking of. The big thing here this episode is going to be talking about a prospect report. You're getting the Mets up top 15 prospects of the Mets organization, roughly, but that's probably what we'll just call it for, you know, titling purposes and everything like that. It will work out our top 15 guys that we at least want to talk about today in depth. We haven't done that in a while, and with the minor league season ending, feels like it's a perfect time. So we'll talk about some prospects, and we'll also be answering some questions from Twitter. So make sure you're following us on Twitter, at MetsUp, as well as Instagram and TikTok. Same thing everywhere. YouTube channel, MetsUp Podcast, if you want to watch a video version of this. Make sure you're following me and James on Twitter, at GiraffeNickMark, at JeterHadNoRange. And if you're listening to us, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, drop us a five-star rating, drop us a review. James, after some tef- technical difficulties here, we came in here for our second attempt. How you feeling? I just realized this is the first time that we've done an episode live together since right before the trade deadline. We did our trade deadline draft. Yes. And that coincides perfectly with the Mets season falling off a cliff. So I can't help but feel kind of bad. Yeah, I feel like in the future we're going to have to definitely get some more in-person ones snuck in here because things have not been going great since our last one. No, yeah, once I get once I get a car again, we'll do that. My car died for listeners at home, which is why this has become much less. I biked here from Brooklyn to Queensland. You can almost still see the sweat on my shirt. You can definitely see it on my back, but I will not show you guys that. You don't have to go through that on the YouTube channel here, but we got a lot to talk about. Uh, Mets are playing awful baseball. Terrible. This series was just a real kick in the teeth. It was, I, I don't actually, maybe not even a kick in the teeth because we're kind of over it already. Yeah. And you could just turn this game off if you really want to. Definitely. And for everyone home, there is a massive silver lining to the Mets completely shitting the bed here over the final two weeks. There's been a lot of offseason talk on Twitter over these last couple of days. All the beat writers are already on, the, on, the, um, on that grind. Tweets are being retweeted from the Puerto Rico World Baseball Classic team for 2017 with Carlos Correa at third, Francisco Lindor at short, and Javi Baez at second. And to sign players like Carlos Correa or Trevor Story, I'm, who are the other notable qualifying offer guys out there? I mean, Chris, Corey Seager. Seager. I think Chris Bryan, when you get traded, Chris you Bryan. can still do the qualifying offer. Yes. So the qualifying offer, you will lose your second pick in the draft. And because the Mets have two first-round picks this year, if the Mets' first-round pick that they earn based on their own merit and record falls after the 11th pick in the draft, which is the one they're receiving for not signing Kumar Rocker, Kumar Rocker? Yeah. yeah close. They'll lose that pick. But if that pick comes before 
the Kamar Rocker pick. The Kamar Rocker pick is locked in. You can't lose that for anything. So if that pick is in the top 10 because that pick falls at number 11, the Mets will only lose their second round pick, which would be a massive victory to retain two first round picks and sign a superstar like Carlos Correa. You know, it'd be, it'd be awesome. I mean, first round picks, that's been the hot topic on Twitter because everyone doesn't want to give up a first round pick here to sign a massive guy like Carlos Correa, but that's foolish. And no one really knows the rules. Yeah, and no we one. don't even know the rules based on how they sit because it's probably going to change with new CBA. Yeah, every, everything could really be different. <laughs> everything is nonsense right now, but it's fun to argue. Yeah, fun to argue. And that's kind of the only thing we really want to talk about here because that's like a positive thought because again everything going on currently in Mets world is pretty negative and it started with game one just bad just not great we were actually at the Yankees Rangers game that night we were playing a little trees in there uh yeah whistling we heard a few not we actually didn't hear anything but fourth inning we're watching the game on the scoreboard and we see bases loaded nobody out and me and you both looked at each other and were like I mean how few runs are we going to score this inning Definitely exceeded our expectations by scoring two because, of course, we drew a bases loaded walk. It's our favorite thing to do. 16th bases loaded walk on the season, seventh in all of baseball. Elite at bases loaded walking. See, we have fallen down because I remember in the first half of the season when things were going well, we led the league in that tie with the Brewers for a long time. So now we've dropped back to just in the first third of baseball. So, you know, whatever, whatever there. But yeah, still bases loaded, no outs. We get a single. And then Gary D. Sarcina has what is probably the worst send I've ever seen of all time. Line drive to center field. Pete Alonso, not fleet of foot. Don't let the two triples fool you. Pete Alonso has no speed whatsoever. As Kike Hernandez is touching the ball, Pete has still not yet touched third base, and Kike is in shallow center field. And he has a good arm. And he has a strong arm. The Red Sox outfielders, while they might not have the greatest gloves, they all have really strong arms mm-hmm. out there. And he throws Pete Alonso out by 40 feet. I mean, the ball's caught and the catcher's waiting. And I think almost the craziest part of this is that Pete dove in head first, still trying to get there safely. Like, just just take the tag, you're out, Pete. Don't get hurt. Pete does not need an excuse to dive anywhere head first. Pete Alonso runs around the bases like the very large third grader. He's got to show everyone that he played. He's got to yeah. get dirty. <laughs> but this was very similar to the VR play in the Friday night of the Subway Series. But... This was not Gary Sanchez catching. This was Christian Vasquez, who's not an idiot. So he went out and tagged P. Alonso, and he got the out. And that was still, in that situation right there, still men on first and second, only one out. And the Mets still fell quietly into the night. Yeah, I mean, DeSarcina has, we've said it all year, he's a god-awful third base coach. It's really not a tough job either. Like, it's, it's, I think it's so easy to be a third base coach. I'm sure it's, you know, a little bit because I haven't done it at the major league level by any means, but... I think it's really easy if it's easy, but, like, you kind of have to have a feel for it. And we've learned time and time again, 150 games in, Gary DeSarcian does not have any type of feel for this role. I'm sure he's a very good coach. I'd like to keep him on the staff. Players seem to, like, like him, and he seems to be a positive influence, but holy shit... How can this guy not tell when the ball's in the glove and you're not at their base? Don't go. Just stay. There's no outs. There's a great freeze frame of when Kike Hernandez is touching the ball. And Pete, I mean, he's a good 10 feet away from third base. He's not even close. We tweeted out from the Messed Up Podcast on Twitter. Everyone follow Messed Up Podcast. But yeah, moral of the story is that just not the third base coach. I do think it's funny that in the game that we probably ran the bases, one of the best was against the Marlins where Javi came around and scored on that ball from Alfaro. Tony Tarasco was our third base coach, not Gary DeSarcina. But that was also in a vacuum objectively a bad send fair a good throw and he's out or a non-catcher playing left field and he's out this was just a good i'm honestly he's a good outfielder he's a fine center fielder but kike nair is a good outfielder with a good arm christian vasquez is a very good defensive catcher i'd say very good very good definitely and you get out and like especially when you could just have bases loaded nobody out still with two moderately competent hitters and kevin pilar and dom smith coming up it's just a bad decision and 
Something I've never seen before. Never. Was Gary DeSarcina show the motion. He acted like a hitter who got out. He got in the dugout. He slammed his helmet. Never seen it before. I mean, that's how you know it was so bad. Is when the third base coach is like, holy shit. Like, I, I, I'm I, so pissed at myself that I'm going to throw my, my little helmet without the ear flaps. It's bad. It's bad. But again, that's not why the Mets lost this game. They just didn't play good baseball. It's one of the reasons they lost. If they could have gotten like five runs oh. this inning, which was possible against Eduardo Rodriguez, a pitcher who's taken a massive step back since COVID almost killed him you know yeah but I, I mean we still didn't hit like Pete Alonso no. being out at home plate isn't why we lost the fact is the Mets just cannot pile runs together again hate to keep bringing up the Yankees here but we were at the game and saw them put seven up on the Rangers like damn wouldn't it be nice to just score some runs and bunches hit some home runs I mean the Mets just don't do any of that just that national series and that was really it and those five games are really um buoying our entire second half stats to make us look like a competent offense but day in day out there's a three-run team you can't win scoring three runs. No, and the Red Sox got one back right away. Vasquez brought home Bobby Dahlbeck. Stroman struggled all night. He just really wasn't sharp like we've seen. He struggled a bit. But the worst part was he struggled with the bottom of the order mostly. And Xander Bogarts. Xander Bogarts had a massive game. But Bobby Dahlbeck, Christian Vasquez, and Jose fucking Iglesias, each of them had two hard-hit balls apiece. Like, there's no reason that Marcus Stroman should be struggling with the seven, eight, and 9 hitters on the Red Sox. No reason. And I remember you, we were looking at like the highlights and stuff at the bar, and it was a lot of sinkers. A lot mm-hmm. of sinkers missing from Strum, and that's been a big thing that you've wanted him to kind of ease back on or ease up on is, is the sinker usage. No, definitely. And shit went really bad in the fifth inning. Kike and Xander both hit home runs, and both came off of that sinker. And you just know when Marcus Stroman is on the mound and he's throwing significantly more sinkers than his off-speed pitches, it's just not working. And... On Tuesday night, he threw 41% sinkers, just 24% sliders, 19% colors, and 14% splitters. And I was actually talking to one of my friends who works for Baseball Info Stats and Solutions. So they chart pitches there. They are the ones who put the pitches on Baseball Savant and Fangraphs that we all use and love so much. And he said that Stroman is the worst pitcher in all of baseball to chart because he said the sinker and the splitter basically look exactly the same and the slider and the cutter basically look exactly the same. Hmm. So at the end of the day, to a very... um, Acute observe, astute, uh, acute is a white, way wrong word there. <laughs> a very astute observer. It's almost like while Strowman does have all of these pitches, they kind of just break down into basically two. And when most of them are just sinkers, they're 92 miles an hour, some of them falling right into the middle of the plate, it's not going to happen. Every single one of those pitches allowed at least one hard hit ball, and none of them had more than three whiffs, which is a big difference from the Strowman we've seen since the second half began. And he just wasn't sharp. And while it is a very good lineup, you would expect a guy like Marcus Stroman, who's due for a massive payday, who's pitched an incredible season. He's going to get down ballot Cy Young votes to just be a little bit sharper against this team. I'm not going to hold this against him because he's been probably our wall-to-wall best player this yeah. year, all things considered. But he just wasn't sharp. And the Mets aren't going to win a game when Marcus Stroman is not sharp. No, it's, it's very hard, especially when we score three runs. And then he also didn't get any help. The Mets didn't get any help either because Miguel Castro came in and immediately got into trouble. Something about facing the American League East, he just crumbles. Stroman too, I guess. Yeah, yeah that's probably it too. Just not a great matchup because these guys have seen them for years and years. But Castro got in trouble immediately. And then, I mean, you guys know what's coming, right? You know what's coming. You know who we're going to talk about. It's, Ma- it's fucking Brad Hand again, again. I mean... Game was over, but it's it's Brad Hand ah, again. The worst part about Brad Hand giving up runs again for his, I want to say, third straight appearance or third out of four, maybe so fifth out of six, because I only remember that one time he didn't give up runs. And that was, again, like in the game that just was over already, and he went one, two, three. After the game, Luis Rojas said that they really want to get this guy going and see what they have. Luis, 
we know what you have. Everyone knows. Everyone's aware of what you have in Brad Hand. The guy isn't good. He, You picked him up off the scrap heap on his third team of the season. He was cut from a team who has World Series aspirations. There's a reason he was even available and that no team in the playoffs put in a waiver claim for him. Not one. He got to you. He made it to the Mets in waivers. Like That should be your first inclination. He's just bad. He's just really bad. I don't understand, one, wanting to know what you have in Brad Hand. You can just see it. There's there's no reason to find out more. It's obvious based on his play. It's not like he's going through a rough stretch. No. He's been bad. So we're, it's, over, we're over two years of Brad Hand being not a major league caliber pitcher now, but for some reason, since the guy has 100 career saves, everyone's like, he's got to have something. This isn't like fucking 2003. This isn't like pull John Franco off the scrap heap and see if he can make some magic happen. No. Trevor Hoffman just figuring it out at the end. Like, this isn't that. It's it's so weird. I, I can't be coming from Rojas, right? It can't. You got to hope it can't that, that Rojas doesn't want to see. Because to me, the idea of him saying we want to see what we have leads you to believe that the Mets are considering him next year. Which, by the way, there's a serious chance I boycott going to a Mets game if Brad Hand is on the New York Mets in 2022. I can't do it. I can't pay money knowing that that guy is getting paid by the team that I just bought a ticket from. I think there's a better chance of Brad Hand pitching for the Long Island Ducks than the New York Mets next season. But back to my point. This has to be coming from Sandy, right? There's some weird fascination with him and Brad Hand. What if they are actually tanking? What if the Mets are Galaxy branding, trying to make sure they keep both first-round picks? Because I'm sure they're intending to sign at least one player who's going to be offered the qualifying offer. So if that's the case, it would very much behoove them to end this season with better than the 10th overall draft pick. If that's yeah. the- if we're actually throwing games, I am all in. I'm back in this front office. If we're actively cheating, if we're pulling the Philadelphia Eagles to get Devontae Smith, like that is a great move. Then I'm so in on this front office. Everyone keep their jobs then. Yeah. Just, I just can't. I can't swallow the pill that is Brad Hand being on the mound ever for the orange and blue. It's like this big of a pill. It's so big. And you don't have a, any water. It's a horse pill. That's one that like goes in your ass because it's too big. You, you can't need, swallow you that shit. You need to focus on building up your saliva for hours beforehand. And you're in the desert. It's like, <laughs> you can't do anything else. Uh, good note here. Pete's a little closer to 40. Got to another 40. home run. To this series. To this series. So Pete's he's creeping there. What is he at, 36 now? Pete to 40. Pete to 40 <laughs> could happen. That's that's what we're rooting for the rest of the year. And that was the end of game one. Pete got 35, and that's all we'll talk about it because that's really it. And then game two, um, fuck this game. Fuck this game. It was just bad literally from the start. Taiwan did not have it. And then Trevor Williams came in, and he for sure didn't have it. It honestly... Looked like it was a home run derby. It looked like they were just like playing against a minor league team. I'm in a group chat with my dad and one of um, his ornery friends. Shout out Mr. O'Donnell. And he was like, every hitter sits back. They don't even care what's coming. They it's hit true. everything. They, they literally- look so comfortable. Like the Mets have ne- the Mets haven't had a game where they took swings like that all year. They've, the oh, Mets they've have never like three or four. Mets have never Some looked of the this Nationals comfortable. Games, that, that game they gave up nine runs to tie the game. They looked yeah. like that at first. And we really set the tone in the top of the first before any of the nonsense in the mound happened because Nimmo struck out, Alonzo struck out, Nimmo actually struck out three times in this game. One of, his, one of his rougher games of the season, even though he did get a base hit. Against Chris Sale, who is like, imagine a guy getting Tommy John surgery a year and a half ago and just pitching really well down the stretch. I know, right? Wouldn't, Wouldn't you? Be cra- that would be so cool to have nice. on our team. That'd be so nice. But we don't have that. <laughs> and then the fucking Met killer that is Kyle Schwarber. My God. I mean, first off, he just owns Taiwan Walker. My goodness. Not a great matchup to begin with. But then, two, another multi-home run game. And he crushed them. He crushes all his home runs. But he really, really hit these hard. I don't know why his second at-bat, after the first home run, the Mets just didn't drill him in the back. Yeah. I can't send a message. Thank God he was injured during the 2015. And uh, No, that was. That was no, like, he played during 2015, yeah, he and he hit home. He was the yeah. only guy on that Cubs team who hit during that NLCS against yeah. the Mets. 
But right now, as it stands, Kyle Schwarber has eight of, I believe, 29 home runs this season against the Mets. It's unreal. And shout out Meek Phil, because he did the math here. That's 29% of his home runs on the season. <laughs> 29%. He's been in the American League for two months. He's played, like, what? Like, honestly, like, 10 games against the Mets, and he's got eight home runs? I don't even know if it's that many. Seven? He just, he killed us. He killed us. And then, you know, Verdugo, Kike. Jose Iglesias, JD. I mean, this lineup Scott hitters all around. Not that Jose Iglesias is by any means, but those other guys will hit the ball well. You could do much worse out of the nine hole than Jose Iglesias. The, uh, the Mets have done way worse. <laughs> we hit James McCann in the nine hole. Well, and pitchers. And pitchers, that is true. But, oh my God, it's just, Taiwan's got nothing left. Taiwan's got nothing left. I mean, we thought he hit a wall earlier in the year, and then he kind of came through it a little bit with a couple decent starts here, but uh, he's hit the wall hard, and he's splat. The season's over for him. No, and we did say in our first episodes of the second half that this was going to happen, that he needed a break, that if we actually had adequate depth, a month off definitely would have helped him a ton. And he was pitching like a little bit over his skis in the first half. Like if you looked at things like his Sierra, his expected ERA, and his FIP and his XFIP, like he was pitching a little better, but you could expect that based on how good of defense the Mets were playing and the fact that he was getting adequate strikeouts, but. None of it's happening at all anymore. His fastball was legit teed off on yesterday. Yeah. And he has made that switch in the second half. We've talked about it a lot. Going away from the two-seamer and doing all the four-seamers. That's probably because he felt like he may have been losing a little bit of juice and he wanted to get that velocity rather than the movement. But literally, the softest ball that was put in play in that four-seamer on Wednesday night was at 99 miles an hour off the bat. Whoa. 106 was average. Whoa. That's BP. That's BP. That's literally BP. He has, for lack of a better term, completely and utterly fallen apart in the second half. And again, I think the Mets have misused him. This is a guy who has not thrown 150 innings in the season since 2017. From 2018 through 2020, he threw a total of 67 major league innings. This, there's no reason for him to have pitched this much this year. He's crossing the 150 inning threshold. He's going to make 30 starts if he finishes out the season in the rotation. That is gross, gross incompetence, misuse, and you're putting him in jeopardy of next season at that point. Yeah, uh, and it's just... You don't want to see a guy like just get absolutely shell like that's a confident that's a tough thing to swallow, I feel like, especially with how good of a first half he had. Dude, definitely. And the first half he was really good. I don't want to take anything away from Taiwan Walker. He was an all-star. He had a two six ERA, a whip that was barely above one at one point zero six, twenty-five percent strikeouts, which is like slightly above league average, is a very good number. Thirty-seven percent fly balls, which is a pretty good spot to keep you in. 0.57 home runs per nine inning, which is a very, very good number, keeping the ball in the yard. And only 6% of his fly balls went for home runs, which means even when the ball was put in the air, there weren't really crazy exit velocities on them. And you want to talk about the second half right now? This is literally one of the worst two-month stretches I've ever seen for a pitcher who's maintained their spot in the rotation. This is shit you see on the Orioles, the Tigers, the Royals, the Rangers. Like, this is that level of bad. I'm not a guy who uses pitcher record very often. I don't like wins. I don't care about them. You've probably never heard me mention them on this podcast. Taiwan is 0-8 in the second half. It's really hard to pitch well and be 0-8. It's really hard to pitch competently and be 0-8. You know why he hasn't pitched well? Because the ERA is 7.74 it's in the lot, second half. That's a lot of since runs. Since the All-Star game. Since Mike Zunino hit that home run off him. <laughs> and you think maybe, I don't know, the defense behind him has failed him? No. He has a 7.27 FIP. He's just simply getting shelled. He's simply getting annihilated. Whenever the ball gets put in play, it's hit really hard. And the ball is getting put in play a lot because his K rate has dropped to just 18% in the second half, which is well below league average. It's Matt Harvey numbers. I was literally, when you talked about, like, this is what the Orioles, and I said, this is what I would expect from Matt Harvey if he was on the Mets. And the ball has been put in the air much more because that fly ball rate has jumped up more than 10% to 10 points, not 10%. 10% would only be a 3% raise. This is a 10-point raise to 48% fly balls. 
That home run per nine is at a shocking 3.2. He's giving up more than three home runs per nine of pitching. That is one of the worst numbers I've literally ever seen. And another one of the worst numbers I've ever seen. 23% of his fly balls are being translated into home runs. I, that doesn't even feel possible to me. That is something that the bad relievers do. This, like, his numbers on the pitching side would be, like, I mean, one of the sickest baseball players of all time if that's how he hit. Like, it's unbelievable. Like, imagine if you had a home run 23% of the time you hit a fly ball, you'd be freaking Barry Bonds. You would, you would literally be Barry Bonds. Like, yeah. those are Barry Bonds, late 90s, early 2000s type numbers. And the big adjustment for him in the second half was throwing more four-seamers, less two-seamers, more splitters, less sliders. And that just screams to the fact that his, his dogs are barking. That elbow and that shoulder have to be killing him if those are the adjustments he's made. And his velocity has been level, which is the weirdest part, but it just seems like the command is shot. And we also should mention that in June, he had less spin on all of these pitches for whatever reason. I don't know how, I don't know why, but that seemed that could have happened. And there's not really a super definite correlation between losing spin and losing um, effectiveness. That has not been proven in any way, shape, or form. It has been proven in some small instances. I'm looking at you, James Karinchak. Big cheater. Mr. Anti-Vax. We use spider attack, which is, <laughs> that logic doesn't make any sense in my mind. But the bottom line is he's just allowing way, way, way more barrels. And that would be the whole reason the fly balls have gone up, the home runs have gone up. He only allowed a barrel in 10 of his 17 first half starts. And most of those starts, it was really only one per game. There were only, I think, I didn't take this note because it was uh, it was hard to tell on the baseball savant interface, but it was about three or four times that he allowed multiple in a start. He has allowed at least one barrel in every single start in the second half besides the first one he made on July 18th. And he's allowed multiple barrels in all but four of those starts. He has completely lost it. There's no command. And guys are getting in the box very, very comfortable and simply annihilating the baseballs against Taiwan Walker. Teeing off. Teeing off big time. And listen, like you said, we knew this was coming. Not this bad, though. No. Not this bad. That's the one thing we will say. No, we warned Mets fans that when he was pitching to a 260 ERA in the first half, his true talent would have indicated he was a low fours, high threes guy, which is a fine back end of the rotation pitcher. Which was supposed to be his job. Yes, like 4-5, possibly 5-6. He's a guy who comes in with depth. He was supposed to be in the back end with David Peterson, Jordan fucking Yamamoto, Joey Lucchese, if anyone even remembers that person pitching the Mets this year. He was never going to be an ace. Him being an all-star was a great story. He probably does still have like more to climb just because he still has good velocity and he has multiple pitches. But the Tywin Walker we got in the first half is not his true talent. It's not. But this is also not his true talent. I think he's really just fatigued. And he needed a break. We didn't have the depth to give it to him. And this is the result. This is the consequence. Yeah, we were expecting Syndergaard to be back sooner, Carrasco to be back sooner. We were expecting Jacob DeGrom to be pitching. I mean, there's just a lot that has made Taiwan turn into a different pitcher than he really was probably supposed to be this year. I can't imagine coming into the season that he thought he was going to throw more than 130, 140 innings. No, right now he's sitting at 150, and I just can't imagine this was the plan. Can't be. It just can't. And if it was, again, like we got to seriously reconsider what we're thinking about in this front office. But this couldn't have been because the Mets went into this season with like eight usable starting pitchers. I don't want to say competent because my guy Jordan Yamamoto, if he gets into an inning next week, you guys are going to really hear some shit. (laughs) He got crushing Syracuse last night. Oh yeah, I mean, it's Jordan Yamamoto. Like there could have been ways to actually alleviate him and give him one of those IL stints. Three weeks off, skip your turn a few times. Like just get through, let everything rest up and do fine. Just like the White Sox is doing right now with Carlos Rodon. A guy that we found out this week that the Mets were considering for this spot, either Rodon or Taiwan. But he ended up going back to the White Sox. What can you do? The guy made a decision for his family. It happens. But you need to take load management into consideration. You can't ramp up from 40 innings to 150. You can't do that. It's not smart. You're putting this guy's health in jeopardy, and you're putting your team's success in jeopardy. 
Yeah, not smart. Not not good. This is something you were harping on a lot at the start of the season that like people aren't going to understand that the innings are really going to catch up to people. And that was on guys who pitched last year and pitched a good chunk. And years before, Taiwan, like you said, has thrown 60 innings in three seasons. He's and, just not not fair to him. And to go on a little tangent here, a team that we've made fun of, especially when this happened, the St. Louis Cardinals, they made a point at the trade deadline to get guys with rubber arms. Yeah. So this wouldn't be an issue because they were throwing out some like really ridiculous starting pitchers in the first half. Johan Oviedo, who has good stuff. He just couldn't get anybody out. Jake Woodford is still in there and pitching, but that guy really sucks. Dead. Daniel Ponce de Leon. Daniel Ponce de Leon. He, like, I liked him for a little while, but he's like not even a competent reliever anymore. But you could just John Lester will just throw six innings every time, every five days. Miles Miklas will throw six innings every five days. Jay Happ will throw six innings every five days. No matter how effective they are, they will get the innings. And innings are so important in baseball right now. Yep, and it's been a big struggle for us too. Which it's unfortunate. Whatever. I. It sucks. We wish it didn't have to happen that way, but we had to talk about it. And then Trevor Williams came in, and he just threw BP because it's going to happen. It's Trevor Williams. You can't pitch the contact against the, the no. Boston Red Sox. In Fenway Park, yeah. contact? Come on. But whatever. Like That game was over. It was already over at that point. We turned it off. Pete hit it. another home run, got closer to 40. 36. Pete to 40. That's what we're talking about here. Now, let's switch it up. Let's talk about the prospects here because this is what you guys probably really care the most about because you saw the games. There was not a lot of redeeming qualities from those. Let's talk about some things that maybe could be redeeming here. The prospects. And of course, we're going to get it started with the number one overall prospect in the Mets system, top 10 in baseball. Best catcher, best catching, second best catching prospect in baseball. Yeah, behind Adley, but that's a pretty good guy to be behind. That's let's, fine. let's be honest. Adley's like seven years older than him. Yeah, Adley, <laughs> Adley's 30. But Adley's older than Juan Soto. Everyone when, remember that. When Francisco Alvarez turns 24 like Adley Rushman, he'll be an elite hitter in Major League Baseball. So yes. it's hard to compare these two guys. But we can. And we're going to talk about how good Francisco Alvarez's 2021 season's been because... It was awesome. It was a sick, sick year. No, what a massive, massive success Francisco Alvarez's first full season was in the Mets system. In the end, between low A St. Lucie and high A Brooklyn, he wound up with 400 plate appearances, a 272, 388, 554 slash, 24 home runs, and a 148 WRC+. plus. That's so sick. Incredible. That's so sick for a 19-year-old catcher. Literally, he's younger than every player at this level. He wound up with 24 home runs, in, like I just said, between high A and low A. That was the seventh most of all players in the system. And when you really peel back for age and position, it even looks way better. It was tied for the second most of all players who played less than 100 games because Francisco is a catcher. You're going to do some little management. You're not going to play every day. And that's, that's fine. We're, we're okay with that. This was also by far the most home runs for any player between low A and high A, ages 19 or younger, and the fifth most of any player that age and level since 2014. And again, by far the most for any catcher and the most for any catcher in A-ball since 2007. That's impressive. Do we happen to know who these guys are? Uh, they were insignificant players. Okay. Yeah. Okay, interesting. We'll I would have part. written them if they were yeah, yeah. insignificant. Okay. It was like, like the home runs were guys like Bobby Bradley. The catchers were guys I have never heard of. <laughs> okay, gotcha. Well, listen, I mean, everything you're telling me right there, I mean, we knew this kid's a stud. We've watched him play, talked to him, interviewed him, you know, met the podcast interview, Francisco Alvarez, no big deal. Great season, just a coincidence, I guess. But... Yeah. I mean, he's just so talented. I'm so excited to just see this guy rise through the ranks of this farm system. No, and I just want to make sure everyone's aware that this guy is literally a freak to the highest degree. Like, he has, like, a Juan Soto-type potential at the plate. In the 15 games in low A that he played when they had robot umpires, he walked more than two times more than he struck out. That's sick. 15 walks versus seven strikeouts in 15 games. This, this guy has potential to be one of the better hitters in the entire league. He's that good. He's that smart. He's that focused. He's that committed. He's also that, like, fucking strong. The guy's a beast. He looks like a, like a turtle that, like, just 
mutated and grew to like but have massive forearms. He hits the ball hard. I'm really, really happy we have him in our organization. Yes, and then, of course, the other guy that we interviewed, too. Let's talk about Ronnie Mauricio, who also has had a really nice year for Ronnie Mauricio. Definitely some improvement, for sure. No, definitely. We, I've given him my fair share of shit. I would still be super okay with him being traded this offseason if it meant getting back like an elite major league player in return. But he really took a major, major step over his last 50 games for Brooklyn since he appeared on the Mets Up podcast. And it just so happens that it was a really clean number, like 50. And it just so happens that it was like when he like when we talked to him. But over those last 50 games, his slash line was 269, 327, 487, with 10 home runs and a 115 WRC+. plus. Still, as a 21-year-old. Still. Still. Just yeah. saying. And he had a stretch during this time where he didn't walk for 17 straight games. And he still wound up with a 327 on base percentage, which is massive. And all the indications that he played good enough defense at shortstop to continue to play at that position, which was a very big deal for him coming into the year. Yeah, Ronnie, uh, the big knock on him has always been the defense and his patience at the plate. And like you said, there was a 17-game stretch where he didn't walk, and that's a little shocking. Hard to do. But to still have that 327, while it might not sound great, that's a massive improvement from what we've seen in Ronnie Mauricio. He would have been like a 280 on-base guy with that 269 average. 100%, but his average wasn't 269. It was sitting in like the 230, 240 range. And that 115 WRC plus is a very big deal because that compares you to every other player at that level. And the fact that he was 15% better than league average at that level, a guy who was not able to get to 100 at any level he's ever played in for a full season, it's very good to see that because this is a guy with juice. He has some swag. He has all the physical tools. He looks like Brandon fucking Marshall out there. And just over that stretch, he cut that K rate down 23%, and he had that walk rate at 7%. Those are numbers that when you move up levels and those get a little bit worse, they're palatable. And if those are numbers that he can get back to in AA for next year, because he's going to be there still as a 21-year-old. And he played eight fine games there. It wasn't anything special, but he had a home run. He stole two bags, and he's playing against better competition. Next year is going to be a massive swing year for Ronnie Mauricio's potential. He could either fall off or become a top 10 prospect. And yeah. I'm really excited to see which way that turns. I'm super excited about him. I just like, I see him. He's got all the swag. I see his Instagram posts. Like he looks like, a, he Jimmy. looks like he's going to be good. He yeah. looks like he's going to be really good and he's playing a lot better. So hopefully he continues to be on a little bit of a tear. Maybe a new Ronnie Mauricio like we've seen with a guy like Javi Baez who weirdly, weirdly, Remember, he talked about Javi Baez. You know who else is starting to walk it a little bit more since that interview? Javi, Javi Baez. Baez. So if he follows the trends of Javi Baez, we're feeling good. We're happy about that. Javi fucking Baez walking. And we hope that we can see Ronnie Mauricio in the Arizona Fall League. There's a good chance we head out there. And also, that is just the best competition that these young players are going to face because it pulls the best pitchers from every organization, the best hitters from every organization. Guys who play well in the Arizona Fall League have consistently, year over year, performed very well at the ensuing levels. That's something I'd really like to see Ronnie go up against. Another prospect we're going to talk about here, Brett Beatty, who's one that everyone knows about. Another guy, he's a little Adley Rushman. like He's like 35 years old in the minors. AARP member. Uh, As you said in the notes, he was just simply too good for high A pitching. No, way too good. And we make fun of his age, but he is 21, which is like a touch older than I'd like my guys to be in low A. Ronnie was 20 when he was playing there. Francisco 19, as we just mentioned. But he just literally like kicked the shit out of the pitchers in that division. The slash line was 309, 397, 514. That's gross. Seven home runs, 25% Ks, 11.5% walks, and 145 WRC+. He was just fucking crushing the ball nonstop. And when he did get that call to Binghamton, double A, he did struggle a little bit. He struck out 15 times in his first 40 plate appearances against just five hits, which 
that's not great, but you're going to adjust. You're going to a new level. This is the best competition by far that Brett Brady has ever faced in his life because he was a 36-year-old in high school. So yeah. that's a little tough for you. But after that nine-game period, he fucking stroked it the rest of the season. His final 31 games this season at Binghamton, he hit 313, 404, 504, 14% walks, 22% strikeouts, very in line with his numbers at Brooklyn, with five home runs and a 148 WRC+. plus. All of those. Very in line with his production in Brooklyn over his entire season. I would like to see probably a little bit more power. Yeah. But I think maybe he was just still trying to get his bearings. He maybe shortened up a little bit, started to try to strike out less, tried to put the ball in play more, still hit the doubles, which we like. And he's going to be in double A next year, I think, with a very, very underrated hit tool that could push possibly 55 60. Again, that's the 80 grade scouting scale for the people who, um, who aren't very used to evaluating prospects like that. But you scout these prospects from 20 to 80, 50 being average. Anything above that being above average. And right now, his hit tool is at a 50. And I do think it's better than that. Yeah. And a very big deal for Brett Bailey is that he played 15 games in left field and didn't fuck it up. Yes. And I know your bold prediction. I don't remember what episode it was. was talking about Brett Bailey being a possible opening day guy, maybe. That was bold. It was a very bold prediction bold, for sure. Bold, yeah. But with these numbers, especially with how he did settle into double A, Opening day is probably not going to happen. I think we all know that. But there could be a world where Brett Beatty gets an early call-up at some point if he continues to mash at the double-A level. And we've seen guys make the jump from double-A straight to the majors, like, very often. Juan Soto. Uh, a lot of guys Fern- have done it. Fernando Tatis. Fernando Tatis. But not that Brett Beatty is, like, on the level of those prospects. I mean, but Bobby Witt was very much in contention to make the jump from double-A to the major leagues after a season, like, very similar to this. And he didn't walk nearly as much as this. And his defense is probably worse. The guy's stone hands a shortstop right yeah, now. Yeah, not a great fielder. No. But everyone should be excited about Brett Beatty. He does not get enough love in this organization because we have Mauricio and Alvarez, two of the 30 best hitting prospects in the league. But this guy's a ball player. And there's also been another guy, a teammate of his, who's been stealing a lot of the thunder too because at the AA level he did really well, so much so to get him called up to AAA in Mark Vientos. This was a guy that I feel like everybody knew what could be there, but he had to make some adjustments to his game. Similar to what we said with Ronnie, there had to be some changes made in order for him to get that bump up and really turn into a player that could be a major league caliber player. And he did that this year. I mean, the dude mashed. And I don't want to say he's changed people's perspective on him because I feel like that makes you think like he was like bad and now he's good. But he has definitely impressed a ton of people to raise his ceiling. He's changed my perspective a lot. He's, for me, my biggest surprise in this system this year. He's just simply has never stopped hitting. Like he was second of all players in double A in terms of WRC plus ages 21 or younger. So that kicks out Adley Rushman, that old fuck. And Riley, he was ahead of Riley Green the whole season. He got him by one point before his call-up. One damn point. One point. 145 versus 144, which is still just an incredible number. And at the end of his time there, he hit 22 home runs in 72 games, which is ignorant. That puts you on basically a 50 home run pace for 162, that's which gross. I don't want to do 162 because this, is not, this isn't major league pitching, but that's just a sense of how often the ball was leaving the yard when Mark Vientos was at the plate. And when he got the call up to AAA late in the season, he continued to hit at the AAA level too. So this is a guy whose bat is getting really dangerously close to MLB ready. No, oh, absolutely. He he got a base hit in his first three games at Syracuse. And they're still playing games there. And I made these notes yesterday, so I didn't see yesterday's game. So we'll see what happens there. But he's just 21 years old, which is ridiculously young for AAA. Insanely young. One of the youngest players at the entire level. But where he's risen this year is... I don't want to say shocking because he was a first-round pick and everyone knew he had talent, but I am shocked by it. I had like I don't want to say given up on Mark Vientos, but like I wasn't going to sit around and wait for the four years while he figured out his play discipline. And he has bypassed all of that doubt, all of it. There's an outside chance he's in Queens next year, similar to Brett Beatty, and they're both just 21 years old. And he also did a very similar thing with Brett Brady, Beatty, because he's a corner guy in the infield. He played a little bit of outfield, too. He did. Those guys were both playing a little bit of left field this year, which kind of lets you know where the Mets are thinking with both of these guys, especially because the Mets 
upper minors outfield depth is really just pure trash. The mm-hmm. one guy with redeeming qualities is Khalil Lee, who I want to bring up next because he also had a very, very similar rise to Vientos this year. It's a guy who I don't think many people thought was going to be a very central part of this farm system who has really impressed, like me and everyone else especially. I think he also like got the unfortunate um, like too early call-up when he like shook out those eight times in a row because as much as people know that he was a young prospect and he was kind of thrown into a crazy situation, they see your first eight at-bats being eight strikeouts where he just looked completely overpowered. The idiots will lose faith, but of course, obviously you shouldn't be that kind of person. No, 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 no. Don't be a moron. Be, be a fan who looks at data and information. Understand what's going on here. Because this is a guy who was striking out before he got that call in May. Over 30% of the time in AAA. If you're striking out 30% of the time in AAA, you could basically tack on 5 to 10% of that for a major league sample. And he didn't get that much of a sample because it was only, actually, it did end up being like a month, I feel like. I feel like he was weeks. up for like two weeks because yeah. Cash Money Maven ended up taking a lot of that yeah, playing yeah. time. But... From when he went back down, he lit the entire world on fire. He went back down to the minors on June 1st, which is, again, that's when Cash Money Maven came into yep. the picture. And there. Billy. Billy Bombs. And Billy Bombs. Billy Bombs. Good times. Good times there. He played 87 games after that. Slash line was 270, 447 on base. Gross. 447 on base. That's Juan Soto numbers with a 500 slugging percentage, 12 home runs, 18% walks, and still 30% Ks, which that's a problem. But, like, if you're walking 20% of the time, it's palatable, at least. I feel like uh, he always gets compared to Franchi Cordero, which he was also weirdly in the Franchi Cordero trade. Very similar players in that they hit bombs. Mm -hmm. They have, like, all these crazy tools, these elite tools. But sometimes they've had trouble with strikeouts. They've had trouble putting it all together. But it seems like Khalil Lee is getting that patience at the plate that at least, like you said, makes that K rate a little palatable. Definitely. And by the end of the season, even including his first stretch there before he got called up to the majors where he wasn't as good as he wound up being in the end, he had a 159 WRC plus, which was the best in all of AAA. That's sick. All players who were qualified because some guys went up and played a little bit short by the time, that old man Adley, he was the clearly had the highest WRC plus of any qualified AAA hitters. And again, this guy is still just 23 years old, which is a very appropriate age for that level. Younger than Adley Rushman. As we're, that's the bar we're going to keep setting here. Younger than Adley Rushman. It's uh, it's good. It's good to see him play because the Mets really could use some help in that outfield depth, like you said. And this could be a guy that, like, I mean, at the absolute worst, is going to be a very, very good defensive center, like outfielder for the Mets. Yeah, there's no reason that clearly shouldn't be in contention for a roster spot next year, the fourth or fifth outfielder, with power, speed, and good defense. The strikeout rate is probably not going to improve very much. I can't see him striking out less than 30% at the major league level unless something absolutely insane happens. But that kills the ceiling. But this is a very useful major league player the Mets got last offseason. We've played Albert Almora games. No, he's better Khalil, than Albert Almora. Khalil Lee can be on this team. He's much better than Albert Almora. Much better than Albert Almora. And then one more outfielder in the upper minors I want to bring attention to is a Carlos Rincon, the guy we got in exchange for Billy Bombs. Yeah, remember when we had that? Remember when we were winning and we had Billy McKinney playing in the outfield? Fun as hell. One of the best players in baseball. Billy <laughs> that, was, that was a lot of fun. You know, he's been awful for the Dodgers, too. Love to hear that. Horrific. But Love we got this got Carlos Rincon out of it. And the Dodgers are experts at developing these like very high-variance outfielders, just hit bombs. A guy like Andy Pagas comes to mind, who has, I think, the most home runs in all of either high crushing or double it, yeah. Crushing it. I'm pretty sure when I was doing all these statistical lookups, the Dodgers have the three highest home run totals in A-ball on their system. Like, Makes sense. Dodgers are very good at this. So the fact that they were able to give this guy up, you could like perceive one of two ways. Either he's so good and they have such a surplus, they don't care, or they just don't see anything to come out of him because they have great scouting internally and externally, and they don't give a fuck because he can like ride out because they have a guy like Eddie's Leonard who just pops out of nowhere <laughs> and is just like going to be one of the best infielders in all the minor leagues now. But 
This guy has massive power and massive massive swing and miss potential in his game. 10 home runs in 38 games for Binghamton with a 28% K rate. Like, good and bad. But the one thing about Rincon, I'm going to steal Mark's like, hitting whisperer uh, moniker here, is I kind of like his swing. He's, like, very quick to the ball. There's a lot, not a lot of extraneous movement. A lot of times when you see guys, I think of Khalil Lee right now in his yeah. swing, you see, like, the loop, the long loop. Carlos Rincon doesn't have that. Like, he is right to the ball. Not Nothing really messing up there in between. Like, I think there is a chance he could iron out this, um, I don't know, this swing and miss in his game. And also just, like, maybe if he gets it down a little bit, get to AAA next year, another guy who could be very good organizational depth for the New York Mets. Didn't you say uh, when we got him that he gave Vlad Jr. a run for his money in the uh, home run derby in the minor leagues too? Or am I, like, imagining I didn't that? I that. Okay. It could right. be true, but I didn't say it. Okay. Uh, whatever. I don't know where that's coming from. But, yeah, this guy... I, I agree. I think his swing looks really clean. I, it's definitely clean. I, it surprises me that he strikes out as much as he does. That leads me to believe it's more of a discipline thing Pitch rather selection. than, yeah, like the actual mechanics that. of that swing. Just hang out with Francisco Alvarez for a week or two. They'll be on the same team next year. Alvarez, Viento, Brett Beatty. We got a lot of good hitters he could learn from. This double-A team next year, if they end up leaving Beatty there, which I doubt, I feel like he'll start the year in triple-A, but just depending on the, how many players we sign, because I feel like the Mets are going to really put an emphasis on signing a lot of major league minor leaguers this offseason, guys who you sign play played in the major leagues for a long time, but you give them minor league deals, Peraza's, Drury's, the entire Giants AAA team, <laughs> situation like that. So there's a chance the Mets are running out like seven electric double-A hitters next year. Yeah, that'd be, that'd be a fun team to watch in Binghamton if you care about minor league baseball. Let's talk about our guy who we didn't get to interview. We were supposed to that day, JT Ginn. Mm-hmm. Ginn? Ginn? Ginn. Ginn. Okay, I, I'm, I'm, that's never going to click in my head until he's like actually on the major league roster if that happens, but... JT Ginn. JT Tangeray. JT Tangeray. He had an interesting year, coming back from Tommy John, so it was always going to be up and down, and it definitely was. Definitely. He had some good starts mixed into his first couple months in Brooklyn, and we highlighted all of those back and forth. He was one of our most talked about players in our midseason prospect reports, but... He found his groove. Over the last 28 and two-thirds innings he pitched for Brooklyn, he had a 1.26 ERA, not whip, a 1.26 ERA, a 21% K rate, and he got that fastball up to 96 miles an hour. That's fine. You're going to the offseason very positive there. He didn't throw that many innings, so you could do some nice bullpens in the offseason, maybe go to a little maybe go to a little pitching academy, maybe figure something out there, work on that slider, maybe develop a change up here. I like JT again. I think I don't think he'll ever be an ace, but I think there's a very good chance he winds up being a back end rotation pitcher for the Mets. Yeah, and I, I think we would very much take that. Oh, yeah. better doubt. than David Peterson potential. Yeah, oh for sure. And David Peterson was supposed to get major innings this year. And then let's talk about some of the younger guys, maybe even mm-hmm. right now. Let's talk about Alex Ramirez, who's a guy that you were excited about. I don't want to say that you're you know crazy about this guy by any means, but I'm you a little had, bit crazy about you this had guy. you had intrigue for sure. He's the highest. Uh, Bon- the highest bonus given any Mets prospect says Francisco Alvarez, so I'm gonna put I'm gonna put some eggs in this basket, like you know, and he just wound up as basically a league average player in low A at 18 years old, the 96 WRC plus, and then he walks 7 percent of the time, which for an 18 year old in low A leagues that a league that some college guys wind up going to, this is a very very positive season for Alex Ramirez. Like other stuff was really ugly. Oh, this stuff was ugly. Struck out like 30% of the time. He got caught stealing way more than he should have for a guy of his speed with, with all those ridiculous rules down yeah. there. Like, it wasn't great. It wasn't great. But he's 18 years old. 18 years old. He is probably younger than you right now listening to this podcast. And he was playing in St. Lucie. And he was really only one of three qualified 18-year-olds at the entire level. And he was, like, by far the best. Guys who had way more pedigree than him, a guy like Alexander Mojica, who dominated 
the C, um, I think the DSL or the CPX League for the Pirates two years ago. He got a big bonus. And Robert Poisson, who got the same bonus as Yasson Dominguez from the Oakland Athletics. He had a way better season than them. And just also mentioning Yasson Dominguez, who wasn't qualified for the level. He played there for most of the year. He only had a 105 WRC+. Plus. So Alex Ramirez was a stone's throw away from someone who people believe to be the best prospect in baseball. The next Mickey Mantle. <laughs> the Mickey Mantle mixed with Barry Bonds mixed with Mike Trout. Which is just foolish. That's, I think, insane. No, we're like the same height. <laughs> <laughs> if Jason Dominguez is 5'11", I'm 6'3". 100%. <laughs> and then another prospect who's down this level, not this level, down the DCL, DSL, who I've mentioned a few weeks ago when the last prospect reports we did is Joel Diaz. He's actually picked up some steam on that Twitter. It's been your guy. I don't know if anybody mentioned him before me, but I'm going to take some credit for that one. I got to say right now. This um, is why you listen to the Mets Sub <laughs> Podcast. We're, we're before everybody else. We're quick on this I'm digging stuff. deep. I love the prospect stuff. I might be doing some more prospect stuff in the future. Uh, possibly. We'll see what happens these next few weeks here. But... I saw Jacob Resnick do a big deep dive uh, Twitter thread on Joel Diaz for a week after I talked about him. I'm not going to take credit for it, but again, this guy is someone who has some serious potential. Serious potential. Again, everyone should check out the deep dive that Jacob Resnick and Joe DeMeo did on him because there's way more information I had that time because there just wasn't that much on the internet, and they have great facilities to get that information. I wish I had that. I hope I do someday soon. But this dude is like legitimately a child. He's 17 years old, <laughs> and he's topping out at 95 miles an hour with a very useful changeup and a pretty good-looking curveball. Long kid. Comes right over the top. He drops that thing down. You kind of have to scout this guy as if he is a high school pitcher. A high school junior, even. Because in the spring year, you're going to be 17 years old still. And he ended up with 42 innings pitched in the DSL. Which you're getting... This is like the best Dominican hitters at this age on the planet. Ages 16 through 19. This is serious competition here. Wound up in 42 innings pitched with a 0.43 ERA. One extra base hit allowed. One extra base hit allowed. 32% strikeouts. And six strikeouts per walks and 41% swing strike rate. And that's like all of the pitches you throw. I talk about whiff rate a lot in this podcast. That is the amount of whiffs per swing. Swing strike rate is whiffs per pitch. This was 41%. For a 17-year-old, a kid, a child, 41%. Yeah. Now, you got to think of like the DSL and all those like those summer leagues or whatever as like almost the AAU scene for Basically, like, the yeah. Dominican Republic. 18, 19 U's that like, kids like Kalanick, Brett Beatty played in. That's what this is. Yeah, and he's playing that well. You got to look at the guys who are rising to the top there because that's really what you're going to take a, a deeper dive into. Mm-hmm. You want to see the guys who are excelling above the rest. Joel Diaz seemed to be doing that on the mound. You have to dominate that league to really get looks on even the deepest prospect list, the 250s, the 500s, the 1000s, which some crazy, crazy people actually put out there if anyone wants to really look deep. And while I was looking at Joel Diaz, I found possibly another gem in the Mets system pitching at this level, a guy named Javier Atencio. I like that name. That feels like he's calling your attention. Yes. Javier Atencio. Atencio. (laughs) We signed him in the same class as Francisco Alvarez, so he's a little bit older, 19 years old, same as Alvarez, but he's a pitcher. So it takes a little longer. And he's still growing into his body. If you look at Atencio, he kind of like has broad shoulders, but he still has some space to like put some put some mass on. You'll get in the weight room, bench press a little bit. He misses somehow more bats than Joel Diaz. He wound up this year in the DSL with a 44% strikeout rate and a 45.2 swing strike rate. And again, I want to again, harp on his body because he's six feet tall and just 160 pounds. You're going to put, there's, there's room for weight on there, 100%, no doubt. This is like when you're scouting kids for college football. You're like, he's going to put weight on there. He's going to be able to develop the edge rusher. He looks like he could really get beefy. And on top of all that, he is a lefty, dominating at this level. It's I like that. Hard for the lefties to develop that, that stroke, develop those mechanics there. So I really think that every Mets fan should be aware of Javier Atencio. And now 
I'm going to get very deep into pitching here. I'm going to rattle off four or five guys right now that all could be depth next year for the major leagues. One guy, Jose Budo. Jose Budo. We Jose love Budo. Budo. That's going to be our guy. Talked about him a lot this year. We're going to need to protect him from the Rule 5 draft this year because he's eligible. And he wound up, after his call up to Binghamton, with very similar samples between Brooklyn and Binghamton, 58 innings versus 40 innings. And he actually had a better strikeout rate at Binghamton, 20, about 30%, 29.9 versus 25.1. His changeup is gross. Some people have called it the best in the Mets' entire system, which we don't have a lot of great pitching prospects, so that's not a hard uh, crown to wear. But I've watched videos of him. It is a very gross changeup. It fades uh, fades away from his arm action. It's very nice. Probably a decent uh, difference in velocity. I couldn't find any velocity in this guy. Even the videos of minor league games, velocity just doesn't pop up sometimes. Piss poor, that's the year 2021, and we can't even get like an iPhone camera filming no, these games. it's fucking insane. But like... It was got a lot of swings and misses, so I like that. And I'm sure that since he's a good pitcher and doesn't throw with a lot of velocity, it's fastball, he is able to separate those very well. And even though he doesn't throw a great velocity, and he's not really an imposing figure on the mound. He's more of like, again, like that 6'1", 6'2 guy who just like has a little bit of mass inside of him. He's not afraid to work a mid-90s fastball up in the zone. I love those balls. You need balls when you're a pitcher like that. And he's going to be depth for next year's rotation because, like I said, protecting him from the Rule 5 means he will be on our 40-man roster. And that's going to be great. I think Jose Boo is going to pitch in Queens next year. I would li- I'd like to see it. Uh, we have some guys on that 40-man, like I said, that just don't really feel like they should be. I'd rather see Jose Budo get a spot than Jordan Yamamoto, let's be honest. No, definitely. And I'm going to name two pitchers right now who also could be Rule 5 protected this year, but I don't expect them to be just because they're a little bit older and not as impressive as Budo. Josh Walker and Adam Oller. Oller? Oller? We've done this before. I still don't look up his name. Oyer? Oyer. Adam Oyer. <laughs> They're both 26 years old. Walker specifically rose from Brooklyn to Syracuse this season, which is, like, pretty disgusting. And he was very impressive with those first two stops. We did struggle in Syracuse. He gave up eight earned runs in his first start there. Then he had two great games. We threw six innings, gave no runs, and struck out a ton of guys. And then he had a 70 ERA over his next five starts. And then his last start last week, seven strikeouts and five innings. Sure. Whatever. 26 years old, Rule 5 eligible. He might get snatched up. He might not. He'll pitch in Syracuse next year. He'll be more depth. Adam Oler is a guy I like more. Adam Oler if nothing else, has a fucking disgusting curveball. And just having that, he could possibly be a reliever at the next level. He made the jump this year from double-A to triple-A, and he did it, like, super well. His first start in Syracuse, he had 13 strikeouts in six innings. That's pretty dominant at any level. And that's the level as close to the major leagues you could possibly get. You're facing a lot of major league hitters in triple-A, especially if you face the fucking Giants, because they, they have a major league team down there. He legitimately just had one bad start in triple-A, where he lost his command, he walked four guys, gave up five runs. But otherwise... Even including that bad start, he had a 2.16 ERA and 27% K rate in six starts at Syracuse. This is a guy who no one knows at all. No. No, not on the 40-man roster. And he literally dominated AAA. So I would like to see him get a shot next year, again, over a guy like Jordan Yamamoto, who is very clearly not good and has no pitches that are above average. (laughs) This guy at least has a curveball. Like, damn. Poor Jordan Yamamoto. <laughs> he's catching a lot of stray shots in this show, but the Mets have been so bad that it might as well. Again, he's going to pitch next week, and I'm going to be furious. I'll, I have no problem taking shots at a guy that's not going to be on the team next year. Like, I would rather Adam Oler or Jose Budo get those major league innings than Jordan Yamamoto. Like, and not even close. And again, the rules are stupid. Like, if we could have traditional September call-ups and it wouldn't count against this guy's option, they would probably be getting innings. And that'd be cool to see, because I would like to see Budo's changeup or Oler's curveball against actual top-end Major League talent, but we're not going to get that chance. So thanks, Rob Manfred. Yeah, he's good for nothing. Good for nothing. Last two pitches I'm going to touch on very briefly. Junior Santos had a very disappointing season. The guy who always gets thrown into the trade uh, rumors for yes. no reason. No one knows who he is. No one knows you, anything you about You want to know guy. why? Because he's like middle of the pack on yeah. the MLB pipeline, and they're like, he's a young pitcher. Yeah, Someone will take him. He's also, he's 6'7". It takes guys who are 6'7 a very long time to figure this shit out. 
His K rate was under 20% in St. Lucie. His ERA was over four and a half. Just let him pitch there again next year. Maybe get to Brooklyn with that awful batter side and see if he can figure it out. 6-7. The guy's 6-7. He's a power forward. That's tall. That's tall. tall. And it's lanky. And that alone, that, 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 uh, what's it, that reach? Yeah. That could, that could cause some problems for some hitters. That definitely helps. And it takes a while to develop those mechanics at that height. It takes a while. And the last pitcher. I'm going to talk about because I'm sure everyone's still very engaged. I'm sure Mark is right now. Well, on his I, phone. I'm looking up one pitcher that I want to talk about too because I, I got to give a shout out to somebody here. Justin Lasco. He rose from St. Lucie to Binghamton this year. He rose through both A levels, wound up at Double A, and he dominated the lower the lower levels. Dominated low A and high A. He struggled a lot in Double A. He had an eight ERA and basically the exact same amount of strikeouts as walks and five uh, starts. Something you definitely don't want to see. But he has another rule before he's Rule Five eligible. So we'll get the pitch next year, Double A the whole year. And if he has something, he has something. If he doesn't, he doesn't. Organizational depth. And the guy I want to give a shout-out to here, David Griffin, a friend of the podcast. A big shout-out to him. Nice season. He ended up with a really nice season. And that's a guy who came from independent ball playing in the Yinzer Baseball Confederacy, which I'll never forget. (laughs) That's just not even a real thing. 14 games, 5-2 record, 3.57 ERA, 70 innings pitched, 78 strikeouts, 127 whip. He's 26. He was in high A ball. Or 25, he was in high A ball. So, yeah, the potential may not be through the roof on this guy. But, hey, cool story. Friend of the podcast. We're going to give him a shout-out. Yeah, definitely. David Griffin. Let's rock. GM GM of the Pelicans. Yes, GM of the Pelicans (laughs) is also pitching for the Brooklyn Cyclones. And now we have a couple bats that I want to talk about before we get going. And let Mark take it, because I've been talking for about 20 minutes straight. Yeah, we got Carlos Cortez, uh, South Carolina Gamecock, literally wearing a Carolina shirt today. I'm wearing Uh, South Carolina color. Yes, you are. Wow, look at that. Nice matching here. But yeah, Carlos Cortez, known from the days of the Gamecocks. He's always been a very good hitter, and he was one of the best hitters in the Mets system this year. What's really interesting about him is uh, he's a switch thrower. That's just a fun fact to throw out there. He'll play the outfield, he'll throw lefty, plays the infield, he'll throw righty. So yeah, he was at double A for a full season this year. He spent a full season at low A, high A as well. And he's been pretty good at all spots. He just doesn't really have a spot in the field. And that's what you could imagine from a guy who's trying to switch throw and play any position he can. Like he's trying to get any advantage to get onto the field possible. But the big thing here was his power. His ISO jumped up almost 100 points higher in 28 than it was in 2019. And he also is hitting a lot more fly balls. And as you guys know, whether you like it or not, hitting fly balls is better than a ground ball. So if we're seeing that fly ball rate jump up to 50%, which is basically like one of the better numbers there for a minor leaguer for fly ball percentage, that is something to keep note of. That's something to keep an eye on for. He's going to be a utility player. Again, not crazy high ceiling on Carlos Cortez, but the fact that he could play a bunch of positions, none of them particularly well, but have this maybe above average bat that's something that the Mets we've been talking about lack a lot of oh, definitely and just based on the way he's being developed one year at low way one year at high one year at double a I'm not a trend spotter here but he's going to be a Syracuse to open the season next year and just if he continues to rake he will wind up getting a couple at bats in Queens especially if the DH is a thing yeah definitely if the DH is a thing and then another SEC guy to talk about Jake Mangum from Mississippi State who's been in the minors with the Mets for a few years now the cool thing about him is his plate discipline is sick he doesn't strike out like at all he had two full seasons 12% K rate 17% K rate that's really really good especially with how baseball is played nowadays Mm. he's not gonna hit power like anything crazy showed a little bit more than he has in the past but this is a guy who's gonna hit the ball well he's gonna get on base a little bit he's gonna play good outfield for you all-around solid player. Again, ceiling not particularly high on him, but he could be a very capable major leaguer as well. Definitely. I have no idea why in the nine games he played with Brooklyn, he had a 40% K rate. Doesn't make any sense. Weird. Doesn't doesn't make any sense at all. And I thought that was because he was playing in Brooklyn and maybe the Thunderbolt was getting in his eyes. All on the road. All on the road, which is interesting. And then let's talk about our guy Jalen Palmer, another interviewee of the Mets Up podcast. Versatile. 
versatility. Mm-hmm. Wasn't that what he uh, said to be like the most? That was his number one trait about himself. And he's been playing center field, and this is a guy who is not a center fielder. He was a shortstop third baseman, became more of a third baseman in the Mets minors. And once he got to Brooklyn, center field. He's a big, strong kid. He's a great athlete. While he strikes out a shit ton, 40% K rate, he did start to, you know, cut down the Ks a little bit, and he also walks pretty high. So same thing to a little Khalil Leish, not as, uh, as good. But not yet. I mean, not, he's not much yet. younger than him. He is much younger than he's him. He's still 21 or 20 years old, correct? Yeah, 20 I think he is. Yeah. So there's stuff to grow here with him. The fact that he does have the ability to walk is just something that's really hard to teach. Cut down the strikeouts, a little plate discipline here and there. Just on like, he struggles with the breaking ball. I know that for a fact. Yeah. I mean, who doesn't? It's tough. The breaking ball is not an easy pitch to hit. But he is versatile. He's a big, strong kid. And like, I, I like what I see out of him. I, I like the tools that he has. At the end of the day, Jalen Palmer is big, strong, fast, and he takes a lot of walks that'll get you to a that'll get you far enough probably as long as you can build up a little bit on that you'll be a decent player another player I want to talk about who also made the jump with Jalen from St. Louis to Brooklyn is Jose Peroza not Jose Peraza a lot of people get that confused and probably think that Jose Peroza is like this little weak hitting middle infielder but no there's there's a big third base brother from another mother yeah this guy has some power right here it's very sneaky good prospect in this Mets system he had a 136 WRC plus at St. Lucie, but again, he struggled in Brooklyn, 82 WRC plus. But he's going to start next year, again, I'm assuming in Brooklyn, and he's still just going to be 21 years old through June next year. It's his 22nd birthday. So this guy is an appropriate age for the level. He is an above average hitter at the level below, and he has some sneaky power potential. This is a player who you're going to probably see in like the 12 to 8 range of Mets prospect list this offseason. Love to get anecdotal here, but at the game that we went to, remember he, he had a couple of nice hit balls. We're like, who is this guy? Big hit. Jose Peroza. So sure. I, I like to see that. He was in the sixth spot. Another guy you got here is Kevin Kendall. I don't have a clue who this is. He was drafted this year. I figured you'd know. Kevin Kendall was drafted this year? Yes, Arizona State shortstop. Uh, I literally I, left I, that in and didn't give him any notes because I figured Mark, our resident draft expert right here, would have something. Uh, seventh round, if I didn't if I didn't see at the combine or if you weren't someone who grabbed like my interest originally I didn't do too much on you all right well I'll get my nose for it because he just walked into St. Lucie and just started hitting 872 OPS 143 WRC plus 11% walks 18% Ks Arizona State's powerhouse that's for sure and again he didn't have it's not a big power bat here he wasn't really lacing the ball around the yard and only one shares I saw because it was pretty low but he was a college bat who walked in and just played very well and the Mets don't have any shortstops in the system whatsoever so it's really nice to have one that's a competent defender and has good play discipline there's a good there's a win for the organization I think we're gonna hear about Kevin Kendall next year in Brooklyn all right Kevin Kendall that's that's a baseball name too yeah definitely now baseball name it's a big time baseball name I'm gonna close this out with three very young men yeah very young people I like these names too 16 year old and two 17 year olds here we have Francis de Leon Diego Mosquera and Hector Rodriguez. Wait, I'm sorry. Did you say a 16-year-old? Yes. He was born in 2005? Oh, maybe they're all 17 then. I, I 2004 saw, I saw even? 2000, That's... Two, I saw 2004 birthdays here. That's so crazy. Hector, Hector might have been a 16-year-old, but I think the other two, Leon and Mosquera, were both 17. These are our three DSL kings at the plate. All of them at WRC Plus is over 130. The only three on our team at WRC Plus over 130. But it's pretty good. You're 30% better than all the best Dominicans of that age in the world. Looking for the top guys that this, at this league. So this is it. Mosquera is a classic speedy contact shortstop. One-to-one strikeout-to-walk ratio. Highest batting average in the DSL. Rock that shit. We're not a big batting average podcast, but if you're the best, I'll take that. And De Leon is the complete opposite. <laughs> Lumbering, power-hitting corner outfielder who strikes out a ton but just hits the piss out of the ball. I like that. I, I love the dudes who are like these like super like extremes. Yeah. I like extremes. <laughs> okay. Well, you're not going to like Hector Rodriguez because he is in the middle. He does everything well. That's he, also good. Yes, great. He basically has a 1.5 to 1K to walk ratio. Great at this level. 
He has a good approach of power. He did have some base hits. He had a high average, high ISO. He probably has the highest ceiling because he does everything. But DeLeon just might be a beast because he's big and he's strong. And Mosquera is just probably going to hit everywhere. So if you want to really sound cool with your baseball friends, Mets have three 17-year-olds who are going to pop in the next few years, probably next year being St. Lucie. Francis DeLeon, Diego Mosquera, Hector Rodriguez. Those are the boys. Those, those are the boys. We'll keep an eye out for them going into the 2022 season. That's pretty much it we got for the prospect report. That was that was lengthy. That was lengthy. You won 15 prospects. I think I gave like 18. Yeah, yeah that was uh, the most in-depth you're going to get with these prospect reports. The season's basically over. season is over. So Triple, Triple A's playing another week. Yeah, there's not too much left to talk about in the minor league season, and we felt it was a perfect time to do it because two-game series that was uh, complete dog shit against the Red Sox. Let's talk about some prospects, and let's get some interest going there. Definitely. And we haven't done that many prospect reports lately because the Mets have been playing so many games, and there's been so many talking points with the team between – giving the thumbs down, DUIs, um, falling off a cliff, uh, Luis Rojas, like the GM search. Like, we've been talking a lot about the t- actual Major League team, so I wanted to get back to the prospects a little bit because you guys have given some great feedback, and we know you like it. So oh, yeah. I'm glad to give it. Glad to, glad to talk prospects any day. And it's a positive note because uh, beginning, not great. And this, this, this preview of the next series is not great either because we are going to—I mean, you thought we got our kick teeth in by the Boston Red Sox. Be ready to score literally no runs. You said Keith. <laughs> Did I say Keith said, ticked in? Yeah. Nice. Well, teeth kicked in because uh, we're not going to score any runs, and we're also going to get our ton of runs scored on us because we're going up against the Milwaukee Brewers who are going with Eric Lauer in Game 1 who— Remember when the Brewers traded Trent Grisham to the Padres and that was like a complete— Wait. What? Brandon Woodruff got pushed off from Sunday to Monday? Oh. Fantasy baseball? Yeah. That's a killer. Oh, that sucks. I hate fantasy baseball playoffs because there's such fucking nonsense with pitchers every freaking week. I lost last week because Joe Ryan got pushed back three days. Carlos Rodon. Oh, these bastards. I hate all these managers, all these stupid organizations. Just be transparent. Just tell us. Just fucking tell us. Oh, God damn. But anyway, back to what I was saying. Remember when the Brewers trade away Trent Grisham for Urias and Eric Lauer and everyone's like, oh, you idiots. And now those guys are playing really really good baseball and going to help lead their team into the playoffs while Trent Grisham's at home watching TV. I know. Trent Grisham's also had a very bad second half. A guy who still I think is a very good player. Yes. He just might not be that good of a hitter, even though he does everything else very well. Yeah. but uh, And it's also, it's a Hitting is contagious, and when your entire team just shits. As we've seen. Yes, it's very hard for some people to keep it up. Yep, so Eric Lauer, game one. Game two, we're going up against Corbin Burns, who's going to be the Cy Young Award winner going up against Rich Hill. That's going to be, uh, you're going to watch one guy who's explosive, really, really good, and then you're going to watch Rich Hill, who's going to be fine, but put you to sleep a little I'm bit. I'm also going to have a ton of fun watching that game. That's going to be an awesome game It's like watch. so two different pitchers. But it's still like two guys who know how to pitch. Yes. Oh, definitely. Like, Corbin Burns isn't like I throw a hundred, but his stuff is filthy. Like I'm sure Corbin Burns will go like shake Rich Hill's hand before the game. That's a respect. Like, you're, thing. you're one of the best to ever do it, man. That's a respect thing. And then we've got Freddie Peralta going up against Carlos Carrasco, which that's, that's a Venezuelan matchup, isn't it? Is Freddie Venezuelan? Yeah, he's definitely Dominican. He's not Venezuelan. All right. You know what? Maybe I got it wrong. Maybe I got it wrong. I was trying. I was trying to connect something here because uh, yeah, Freddie Peralta has been sick this year. So again, not gonna score any runs. Again, Mets fans, losing here is not the end of the world. Losing here means that we might be able to retain two first-round draft picks and sign Carlos Correa. Remember, we're rooting for two things right now. We're rooting for, we want to see, like, you know, the guys who are going to be here continue to play well, finish the season strong, Brandon Nimmo, Francisco Lindor, all those guys. And we want Pete Alonso to 40 home runs. He's at 36. Milwaukee is a hitter's ballpark. That is a hitter's paradise. Granted, he's facing some really tough pitchers. But he could he could hit a couple and just get a little bit closer to forty because we're we're inching ever so closely. Now, let's go to Twitter here. We uh this is kind of a long episode, but let's answer a few questions. Let's yeah, see what we've got out there. So throw one at me, James. 
All right, this is from our boy Worthy, Tyler Worthy, Worthy NYM. What do you think is a bigger priority to start the offseason? Signing Marcus Stroman or Javi Baez? I think it's got to be Stroman. I was going to say Stroman too. Because I, think- I just feel like the pitching depth is really, really tough. And while Javier Baez has been great and has been awesome, there is a lot more available at the positions that he plays rather than Marcus Stroman. Definitely. I mean, maybe. There's a lot of depth. Like The high-end starting pitchers are a little bit scary this offseason because yeah. the best three are like Zach Greinke, Robbie Ray, and Carlos Rodon. I don't trust I don't trust any of them, even well, a little bit. And still Scherzer and Kershaw. Yeah, exist. but they're not, they're not going to become free agents. So Stroman basically becomes the de facto most uh, consistent starting pitcher on the market. But then you're going to see guys like Alex Cobb, Eduardo Rodriguez. There's another one I was looking at last night. Now I'm forgetting. But there's some interesting names there who are not sexy. So I'd Basically, again, cost is going to be consideration. Marcus yes. Trump wants $30 million, and Javi Baez wants 23 Javi Baez. Javi Baez, come on down. Essentially, who gives us the best deal? Yeah, who's, That's who really wants what it comes less money? <laughs> I would like to sign both, truly. I don't think there's any reason why we shouldn't. But now, now I'm looking at all these questions. They're basically all about the offseason. Yeah, we'll answer a couple more then. Yeah, one more. This, this is our guy, 3RD Oscar. He's a pretty loyal follower. He yes. responds to all of our stuff, likes all of our stuff. If the Mets were the clean house and blow up our so-called core, who would you keep and why? Okay, so it's got to be Pete. Pete's staying. Francisco's staying, obviously. Yes. Uh, Nimmo's staying. Nimmo's Offensively, staying. am I forgetting anybody? There's one. Now well, now becomes the conversation about the other four. With McNeil. McNeil, Dom, Dom. JD, Conforto. Yeah. And, I mean, I think if Conforto comes back, it's going to only be on a one-year deal. I can't imagine the Mets go even slightly long-term with him. I could see four. Four, four for 90. Do we want to? I would. Okay. Okay. He's been, I mean, he's been fine the second half. He's been pretty in line with career averages. He's still a good, good defensive player in the corner outfield. Not good. He's fine. He does. The, he does his job. I think you might be able to get a discount from a guy who, if you would have said this a year ago, was getting two hundred million dollars. I think he could probably still could be that player. There's nothing he's done this year to make me think that he's like one of the worst players in baseball. That's fair. Yeah. Some Mets fans really hate him, but like if you just like take a season in strokes, like if you basically look at one, it looks like he probably got healthy. I do just want to like make a, a funny point here because the the narrative with Conforto is always that he just shows up when it doesn't matter, and <laughs> he's had a great second half when the Mets have been out of it. Yeah, that's true. But also the hamstring injury they rushed back from. <laughs> yes, definitely. And the same thing with McNeil, like. I would be fine with those two guys being on the team next year, but I don't think you can be in a situation where you're guaranteeing Jeff McNeil 600 play appearances. Like, similarly, I'll say this again, say it over and over again. Some of the guys like Chris Taylor and Jay Cronenworth. He'll find his way to 500. Joey Wendell. Joey Wendell. These Because things happen over the course of a season. Everyone's going to get hurt. We've seen it this year. Almost every guy in this team has spent at least some time in the IL, except for Dom Smith somehow. Yeah. <laughs> Dom was playing left field. There's not. A lot, he doesn't run too much out there. But, like, even though Jeff McNeil's not have well not may not have an obvious place to play on opening day he will play a lot i watch jeff mcneil play a lot he's a very good player and he's much better than he's played this season but we can't be like jeff mcneil is going to be our everyday left fielder and two hitter just isn't just isn't a piece to build around right now he is an ancillary part of this team yeah and that's fine he's a great player and then i guess on the pitching side do we does that consider our core i mean we kind of know who's who's gonna stay i mean with just the pitching. Where, i hope these guys stay like, yeah it's not, it's not up to us <laughs> no it's not really up to us on that one um let's see one more question Oh, this well, this is just classic uh, trade Twitter right here. If you guys want to hear what you shouldn't ask us, I all mean, right. So let's see, let's end it on this one then. Let's yeah, end it yeah. on a real bad one. All right, I've never seen you tweet us like any of us up before, Jack Leather ninety eight. I'm sure you're a nice kid, but 
you think maybe the Mets should trade for someone like Sandy Alcantara or Corbin Burns? Oh my God, I'm so tired of that this. That is just simply now. I don't know why Sandy Alcantara's name has come up in so many trade discussions over the last Dude, week. When I stream, there's always a Met fan who comes in and is like, "What? What do we give up for Sandy Alcantara?" I say, "You want to know what you give up? Nothing because it's, it's not, not happening." Happen. If if they if for some reason the Marlins were to just become stupid all of a sudden, which it doesn't seem like they're going to be a stupid organization by any means no. anymore, they would trade him out of the division at worst. If you want Sandy Alcantara, you have to give up. Francisco Alvarez minimum. Yeah. Like, and then more. And then probably also Mark Vientos and also like JT Ginn and also probably Jose Budo. Like, Sandy Alcantara is an ace. He's, Sandy Alcantara is one of the 15 best pitchers in baseball and he's free. He's, it costs nothing. <laughs> and he's going to be there for what, another three years I at think minimum? This is his first year is arbitration eligible. So he'll get like a raise to like six million. <laughs> there is nothing that could ever persuade the Marlins to trade Sandy Alcantara. He was traded for Marcelo Zuna <laughs> when he was a minor leaguer. This guy has incredible pedigree and is incredibly good. Also, Corbin Burns, man. Corbin Burns <laughs> is having, statistically, one of the best seasons in Major League history. He's not a free agent until 2025. His FIP is 1.6. That is one of the lowest FIPs literally in the history of baseball. Do you want to know what the Mets would have to trade? The Mets would have to give up. Our, they would have Jacob to sell the, the team, I think, yeah. to get Corbin Burns. Steve <laughs> you, Cohen would have to also buy like, the Brewers like full, and then make that trade happen as like a little bit of sabotage. Like a half of a billion dollars. <laughs> It's just not gonna happen. <laughs> to buy Corbin Burns, this is like this would be like a soccer loan. You are getting elite performance out of Corbin Burns, and it's not gonna slow down anytime soon. This guy is legit as it comes, and he is going to be five hundred thousand dollars for the next two years. If you're looking at trade chips for the offseason, you have to look at guys like Antonio Senzatella, John Means, um, who's some pitchers on bad teams here, like who have like, not that much control or arbitration eligible. I'm gonna, I need to come up you with really one. You really want one who's going to be a fun trade chip this offseason? Tyler Glass now. Zach Gallon is he available? He could be available, but they they love him. They traded Jazz for him. That's true, they yeah. They have to, like, Merrill Kelly is more of the trade, pitching trade speed. Like, again, like, Drew Darvish was traded because he made almost $30 million and he's 36 years old. And now he's turned out to be pretty bad. A trade that said, was people said broke Major League Baseball. Same with Blake Snell. Like, when you're trading for pitchers, you're never, ever going to trade for top-of-the-line pitchers. It's never going to happen unless you're trading everything to get these guys or unless they're due for a massive race. Look at what Jose Barrios got in a trade. Literally. He grabbed, they grabbed two top-50 prospects. Like, and Jose Barrios, is, while he's good, no one would tell you he's one of the 10 best pitchers in baseball. And you'd be foolish to say. That'd be ridiculous. I don't even know no. if you go top-20 with him. I feel like that's still even he's a little like ridiculous. He's like bordering top-20. Like, I'll hear an argument for that, especially based on like how he's pitched with the Blue Jays. Now, incredible pitching development that they seem to have done <laughs> the last couple of years, turning Steven Matz into one of the best pitchers. Long story end. short, uh, not trading for Sandy Alcantara, and there is just literally, there's no world where we get Corbin Bird. It doesn't exist. There's a better chance of a pterodactyl swooping in through the sunroof right here and stealing Mark. Than eating him, than the Mets training, the Corbin Burns ever getting traded, playing for a different team before his last year of arbitration. There's no chance. No way. No way. And no, I'm, uh, so, I'm sorry to flame you, Jack Leather 98, JJ Joseph, JJ02, but come on, man. Gotta be better than hopefully, that. Hopefully, you're a young kid who's fallen in love with baseball and you're trying, no, yeah, you're yeah. trying to learn. Keep listening. We love, we love talking about it. I, again, it's just those guys aren't going to be traded. And listen, that's part of the reason why we want to help you guys out, too, a little bit here. We, we help educate. We help learn. We help teach you the things so that you don't go into conversations and say things like, hey, the Mets, how about Corbin Burns this offseason? And again, it's very fun when you're playing MLB The Show to just trade all your prospects for Corbin Burns because you can do it. <laughs> but it's just it's very different in like actual Major League Baseball. Yeah, uh, because, boy, if we did get Corbin Burns, that's, that's a lot of fun. Jack, I want to give you credit. You had incredible punctuation in this tweet. Like, you, everything was right, good, good capitalizations. Like, everything was really good. Just... 
Corbin Burton, Sandy Alcantara are not going to be traded. You, you picked some of the most untouchable players in the league. <laughs> Literally. Like, two probably, like, every year, uh, just every year Fangraphs ranks their top 50 most valuable players in all baseball in terms of a trade. And these two were literally both in the top 20. I <laughs> I don't think they may have both been in the top ten because yeah. this what they write they write it every year it comes out during the uh, All Star break so this is before Sandy went bonkers in the second half and he was still yes he was still in the top twenty because yeah. he's so cheap and so reliable throws so many innings and has so much potential so again that's a great place to also learn go to FanGraphs and just read some of the articles understand the way that people who have worked in baseball or who are hoping to work in baseball think and interpret some things like this and uh make sure you watch the game this weekend too so you can watch corbin burns and you can understand why he will not be traded literally having one of the best seasons in the history of baseball i would love him though if that was somehow possible it's just it's just not and i think that's the perfect time to wrap up this episode it's a lengthy one which i didn't expect uh when the mets are out of the season but we got a lot of good info on this one so i hope you guys did enjoy it i hope you liked a little more in-depth talk i hope you liked hearing about the prospects Make sure you guys are following us on Twitter and Instagram, as well as TikTok at MetsUp, the YouTube channel MetsUp Podcast. If you want to watch a video version, uh, drop us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen. Drop us a rating and review. It really does help us out. Uh, drop a James a follow on Twitter at Jeter Had No Range. Me, Giraffe Neck Mark with a C. That's where we're wrapping it up here. Episode number 52 of the MetsUp Podcast. We will catch you guys after this Milwaukee Brewers series. Thank you for listening. Thank you for watching. Peace out. Peace out, guys. See you next time.